Welcome to the Living Out seminar stream. I know if you are still trickling in, do come in if you want to. We're really thrilled to have you here. We're this week in Living Out hearing real-life stories from gay Christians. My name's Andrew. I'm going to be hosting us through the week, hosting our speakers and introducing you to them. And I work for a charity called Living Out. That's kind of how this seminar stream has come about with this name. And we're a charity that exists to help people talk about faith and sexuality. And that's what we're going to do together this week. We know that lots of us have really big questions around experiences of sexuality and how that fits together with the Christian faith. Maybe that's because we're a follower of Jesus and we're thinking that through in our own lives, our own experience of sexuality. Maybe actually we're conscious of friends, of people we love, and they've got questions around sexuality. Maybe we're here, we're not yet a follower of Jesus. And we're thinking, well, what would following Jesus mean for my sexuality and for my friends who maybe are gay or experience attraction to people of the same sex? We want to create a space where we can wrestle with those questions and think about that together. And so each day, we're going to hear from one person who is gay or same-sex attracted and a follower of Jesus. Hear something of their story, what it's been like for them to bring those two things together and to walk through life with Jesus. We're then going to talk about a big topic. Sometimes that'll be a talk. Sometimes we'll have a bit of a panel discussion around a kind of topic related to that. Things like identity, like singleness, like the cost of following Jesus. There'll be a moment for you to have a quick chat with people around you to kind of digest what we've been talking about. And then also some time for Q&A. We want to hear what are your questions and want to think a bit about those together. And in just a moment, I'll tell you a bit more about how that's going to work. And I want to be kind of upfront from the start of the week, and I'll mention this at the start of each session, about the kind of perspective from which we're coming. This perspective from which we're coming is what's sometimes known as the historic Christian sexual ethic. It's what the Bible teaches, what for 2,000 years Christians have believed, what globally a majority of Christians still believe, which is that sex and marriage are designed and reserved by God for lifelong unions of one man and one woman. That marriage is a union of a man and a woman. That's the only right context for sex. That's what we as speakers who you'll be hearing from this week believe. That's what we as New Day as an event and the leadership of New Day believe. And we as New Frontiers, a family of churches out of which New Day has been birthed, what we believe. And I know there are kind of different perspectives that some Christians hold. And we're really up for discussing those in our Q&A and our discussion. But we're coming this week from this perspective because we believe it to be the teaching of the Bible that's backed up by 2,000 years of church history. It's just important to say that's what we're talking about this week. And we basically want to spend a week trying to help you to understand that, see why that's good news for all of us, whatever our experience, and how we can live that out in our own lives, how we can communicate that to other people as well. So we're just really thrilled that you're here to spend some time with us wrestling with these big questions. Today, we've got a good friend of mine, Anne, with us. I'm going to introduce her in just a moment. But I mentioned we're going to aim to do Q&A at the end of each session. Then we're going to try and do it using Slido, which if you were in a seminar stream with me last year, you'll be familiar with. If you can get to slido.com, you have a chance to put in that little code that says LO Tuesday, and that allows you to kind of submit your questions. And you can submit them anonymously. It'll be up there as well. You can submit them anonymously, so you can ask whatever you want. We know the internet is really patchy here at the moment. If Slido doesn't work, we'll just take questions from the floor. So whatever happens, we'll have the chance for questions. But if you want to try and submit them online as we're going through the session, slido.com with the code today, LO Tuesday, is the way to do that. I'm going to welcome up my friend Anne. Anne, come and join us. This is Anne Whitton. She works with me at Living Out. Let's give her a warm welcome. Absolutely. 
And Anne's with us today to talk about the Bible has good news for me. We believe, as people who are gay, we believe the Bible has good news for us and anyone else who is same-sex attracted or gay, and that's what we can kind of explore. But first, we're going to hear a bit of Anne's story. And first of all, just introduce yourself. Tell us who you are, kind of what you do in life. Well, um, first of all, thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. This is actually my first ever youth festival at the ripe old age of 46. <laughs> wow. Because so, <laughs> I wasn't a Christian when I was a, a youth. You're making up for so, lost time. Yeah, yeah. I am. I'm, I'm getting really into it. I don't like the sitting on the floor bit, though. That's annoying. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my name's Anne Whitten. I work alongside Andrew at Living Out. Um, I live up in Newcastle, although I'm from Manchester originally. Um, I'm not married and I don't have children. Um, I share my house with a lovely housemate and an even lovelier cat. Um, <laughs> I do a bit of uh, sort of work with my church, mission, discipleship, that kind of thing. Um, and for fun, I like throwing myself in the North Sea all year round, um, just a little bit of wild swimming. I also play in an all-female samba drumming band. So, yeah, I've got a range of interests. Nice. That's all you need to know. So about. That, that's a good summary of Anne, really. So, tell us, Anne, tell us about how you first became aware of your experience of sexuality. Yeah, it's kind of a tough one because I, I, I don't really remember ever not being aware of it. I've been gay for as long as I can remember, I suppose. Um, so as a youngster, I was um, quite a tomboy, I guess you would say. I don't know if that word is even used anymore. But, you know, I, me and my brother used to sort of fight a lot. We'd wear dungarees. We'd go, you know, climbing trees and get up to all sorts of mischief. Um, and I guess... I sort of idolised um, women. So there was, there's an actress called Jodie Foster who is way too old for you to know about, but she's a little bit older than me and she was a child actress and I really was really sort of attracted to her and idolised her. Um, this is all sort of pre-puberty. Um, and then as I, as I got older, um, went to secondary school, um, I, I, I realised these attractions to women were, were stronger. Um, there was a girl in my class at school um, that I was attracted to. Um, now, this was the 80s and 90s, so, you know, you couldn't really talk about it. I didn't know anyone else who was gay. Um, I felt quite sort of, felt like it was something shameful to keep keep to myself. Um, so I didn't really know what, what to do about it. There was no internet no you know social media anything like that so it's quite an isolating time for me growing up as a teenager knowing that I was gay but not being able to to talk to anybody about it and so at that point you weren't a Christian no and I was so a sort of church goer church goer forced to go to forced, church I have to a, say. a reluctant church goer yeah so when did you become a Christian and how did that happen yeah, so the church that I was forced to go to, my parents aren't Christians either, so it's kind of weird that they forced me to go to church. But uh, I don't actually think the vicar was a Christian either. <laughs> Long story. Um, anyway, yeah, so I, um, I struggled with mental health a bit as a teenager. I felt quite depressed, and I suppose part of that was, you know, just trying to work out who I was, work out what was going on with my sexuality. So I thought university is my chance to, you know, sort of find out who I am, find out what the meaning of life is, really. Um, and also, um, I, uh, I wanted to get away from home. I wanted to sort of make a new start and everything. So I, I decided I was going to study philosophy because I thought that I'll, I'll, I'll learn the meaning of life through that. And I also decided to go to London because there's a massive gay scene. Um, basically, my two purposes for going to uni were um, find out the meaning of life, get a girlfriend. Okay, so, <laughs> um, so I went off to London. And uh, I got involved in the LGB um, group. There wasn't even a T in those days. That's how old I am. Um, 
And that, it was good, you know, there were people who knew what it li was like to grow up as an outsider who felt that the same as me. So, you know, there was some solidarity in that community. Uh, but I kind of still felt there was, there was stuff missing. Um, this is the bit that doesn't paint me in a good light, I have to say. Um, <laughs> there was a girl in my halls of residence who I really fancied, and she went to church. So I thought, mm, I'll go to church then. <laughs> so um, I went along to church with her, not, not because I was interested in Christianity, but because I was interested in her. Um, but while I was there, I met people who, there just seemed something different about them. They, it, it, it seemed like they really believed what they talked about. Um, and there was a guy who was dying of cancer who talked about the hope that he had and I thought this is nuts you know I need to find out more about this stuff um and then there was a guy there who um shared in the student talk um about his sexuality he was gay um but he was a follower of Jesus and I just had never heard this before I thought you know I thought being gay meant God didn't love you or you wouldn't be allowed in church or whatever um and so he shared his story and I thought wow maybe maybe God does love me then maybe I can be in his family um anyway the kind of the the, the clincher was when <laughs> I'd been on a night out in Soho with the LGB group um and I was coming home and I got home and I <laughs> instead of just going to bed like a normal person I got my bible out and started reading Romans 8 for some reason uh and it talked about there being no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it's kind of like everything clicked. Um, and I realized that basically I was rebelling against God. I was getting drunk a lot. I was, you know, trying to find satisfaction in loads of things that, um, that actually weren't good for me. And I thought, you know, I, I actually, I don't want to be condemned. I want to be forgiven. I want to be free. And it, it made me realize that that's actually why Jesus died, you know, to, so that I can be forgiven, so I can be free, so I can have this relationship with God. Um, so I, I think I prayed. I don't really know what I said. And anyway, the next day I said to my friend, we've, we've got to join the Christian Union. <laughs> I, I'm a bit all or nothing. So I was like, right, come on, <laughs> let's join the Christian Union. Um, so, yeah, I joined the Christian Union um, it was a bit weird, to be quite honest. The culture was really bizarre. Um, so I remember we had this thing called a house party. I don't know if they call them that these days, but um, I thought, brilliant, I love a house party. So I, I got on the bus, um, like I was smoking, I had a, a massive bag full of alcohol, and they all just looked at me like, uh, <laughs> all these clanking wine bottles. Um, yeah, it wasn't that kind of house party, it turned out. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, it was fine. <laughs> they were lovely about it. Um, and over time, you know, they taught me what it, what it means to um, follow Jesus. And, yeah, I, I just, um, I'd love to say that I've, you know, never looked back and um, that I've, you know, become perfect. But we know that life is difficult and I've been wrestling with faith and sexuality since then. Uh, but that's the, you know, that's the moment when I kind of knew that I wanted to follow Jesus. Well, brilliant. And I know in a moment you'll tell us a bit more of your story kind of uh, as you help us think through our big question. But just tell us briefly, how did you then work through how your sexuality fit with your newfound Christian faith and following Jesus? Yeah, I mean, I think right from the start, I've been convinced that um, the, the right context for sex is in a marriage between a man and a woman. Um, I'd asked people at, at the Christian Union to help me work through the scriptures and stuff. I'd done a lot of reading of the Bible myself um, and a lot of praying and I, you know, I became convinced of that. Um, living that out has, has been difficult and you know, sometimes as Christians we, we, you know, we make mistakes along the way, don't we? And we rebel against God and we forget that he's good. And you know, I have had a number of sexual relationships um, with women um, 
and I've had to, you know, it's been really painful and heartbreaking to give those up. And, um, but I've become more and more convinced as I've been a Christian um, that the Bible is really good news for me and for same-sex attractive people, gay people like me. Um, that God's not trying to deprive me of anything good, you know. Um, so when I've... I think what what I'm going to talk about, actually, is a sort of bigger picture on sexuality and why I think it's really good news for gay people, for straight people, for everybody. Um, and I think my experience of sexuality has actually helped me rely more on God. It's a bit like, you know, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. I think I, I've realised, you know, I am... I am really sinful and, you know, I, I can't control my own behaviours and actions and thoughts a lot of the time. Um, but um, God is so generous and forgiving. He fills me with his spirit. He enables me to live in freedom. I don't, I don't have to, um, you know, follow my sinful desires all the time. Um, yeah, it's helped, it's helped me take the Bible seriously. It's helped me understand other people that struggle with things, not just sexuality, but all sorts of other things. Um, so in, in a way, I'm sort of quite grateful for my sexuality because God has done so much good through it. And I think he's brought me into a deeper intimacy with him um, through that experience. That's brilliant, yeah. So often the things that are difficult in life also turn out to be ways that God really blesses us mm. and does things in our life. Thanks so much. Do you want to get us up for yeah. your talk? The big topic we're going to talk about today, or kind of a bit like a, a big question we're going to wrestle with, is thing of, does the Bible have good news for gay people? Maybe even as you've heard some of Anne's story, maybe even as I was saying at the beginning, we believe the Bible teaches that sex and marriage are reserved for unions of a man and a woman. Maybe thinking, well, that's clearly not good news for people like Anne and I who are gay. Is this good news? That's what Anne is going to help us think through today. Go for it. Great, thank you. Oh, I sound a bit different in this one. Um, so I've got about 20 minutes to convince you that the Bible is good news um, on sexuality for all of us. Um, we love stories, don't we? And you've just heard a little bit about my story. So I want to tell you a few more stories. Um, first of all, I want to look at the Bible's story on sexuality. Um, then I want to look really briefly at the cultural story. Um, and then look at the Jesus story, which I hope you're going to agree is pretty exciting. Um, so first of all, the Bible's story on sexuality. We haven't got a lot of time, um, so I just want to do a sort of whistle-stop overview of what the Bible talks about um, and why it's good. Lots of the debate around homosexuality particularly um, focuses on the five, um, what, we, what I call clobber passages, that specifically mention um, homosexuality um, in the Bible. So yeah, Genesis 19, Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, there's passage in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, and 1 Timothy 1. I'm actually not going to talk about any of these, um, partly because there isn't time, um, but partly because, you know, if you're determined, you can always find a scholar uh, that's going to say what you want to hear. Um, believe me, I've, I've tried to be convinced by some of, some of these people. I, I, there are times where I've really wished that the Bible said something different. Um, but I think that all the people that try to explain away these passages actually fall short of the mark. Um, there are some really good resources online if you want to look into these. Um, I'd particularly recommend Preston Sprinkle. Um, let's just appreciate that name, Preston Sprinkle. <laughs> He's American. Um, lovely guy, lovely guy, really odd name. But he's written a thing called 15 Affirming Arguments and 15 Responses. Um, you get it free, and it's just a really good look at all those passages. And uh, we've got some great articles on the living outside. I think Andrew's written some of them. Um, so do sort of explore those. But what I want to say is that those passages that condemn gay sex, even if we could explain them away, 
we're still a really long way short of being able to make a biblical case that gay sex is something that God glorifies, that glorifies God and that blesses him. What I will say is um, that we've made a misstep in just focusing on these passages, I think, in the past. I think we need to look at the much bigger picture of biblical sexuality, the overall pattern for what God says we should do with our sex and um, sexuality and how that contributes to human flourishing. Over the last 15 years or so particularly, I've become increasingly convinced that God's blueprint for sexuality is really good for LGBT people like me. So I was uh, quite a romantic, idealistic uh, teenager. I used to write a lot of poetry and stuff. I don't know if any of you guys do that, but as I say, there was no internet, so I had to do something. Um, I used to write songs. I used to dream of, uh, you know, finding my perfect woman. Um, yeah, because there was no internet, I had to read sort of old books <laughs> that I could get my hand on. Um, this is The Well of Loneliness, which is a lesbian classic. I always wanted to be part of a love story. And I think, if we're honest, a lot of us do. I wanted to be part of a love story, and I found myself caught up in a cosmic love story that lasts for eternity. I haven't had to neuter my sexuality, but I can use it to adore my saviour. So let's have a little look and see how that works. First of all, our sexuality is God-given. We're all unique, aren't we? Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that we are different parts of one body. I love spotting ladybirds, um, pun very much intended there. Um, these are all one species of ladybird, the harlequin, and yet look how different they are. No two ladybirds are the same. And on top of that, there are about 5,000 different species of ladybirds globally. Each one of us is gloriously different too, and yet we're intimately known by God. We're embodied people, and to state the really obvious, women are different from men. Our bodies have different roles to play. We have different anatomies, both male and female, but we image God together. So we have a unique personality, and along with that, a unique sexuality. But we're all imperfect. All of us are living with the legacy of the fall, which is humankind's rebellion against God. Nobody's looking at this from a neutral position of perfect sexuality whether we're same-sex attracted gay opposite sex attracted or both our sexual desires are corrupted secondly our sexuality has a purpose um, one of the purposes is, is marriage clearly this is a theme which runs from the garden in genesis um, to the city in revelation there's lots of debate in our culture and even in our churches about how to define marriage. And the place that I like to go is the definition that Jesus gives um, in Matthew 19.5. He's quoting from Genesis 2.24 and he says, A man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. There we've got the Bible's definition of marriage. It's about unity in difference. It's about male and female becoming one. This one flesh unity is the God-designed context for sexual expression. And sexual difference isn't a negotiable. Sexual difference is the way that humanity mirrors the triune God, the three-in-one person. Christian marriage also puts the gospel on display. This is what I really like about it. It points beyond itself to the relationship between God and his people, who are different to each other and yet are united to one another. So marriage mirrors the good news that humans, us, we can be united to God. 
It makes it really clear in Ephesians 5, uh, 31 to 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Obviously, within marriage, sex is an amazingly uh, positive thing. It's, it's pleasurable sometimes. <laughs> uh, obviously, Song of Songs is a, is, is a you know, biblical book that talks about the pleasures of, of sex. And it can bring the blessing of children. But it's also a gift and not a right. And if we don't get to be married or have a sexual relationship, we're not missing out. And I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Another purpose for our sexualities is to appreciate God. Our sexuality helps us appreciate God's passionate love for his people. In the Old Testament, um, God is often pictured as a faithful husband who loves unfaithful Israel. The imagery of adultery illustrates the seriousness of sin and rebellion against God. It's literally like ripping a marriage apart. When God's people go their own way rather than God's, it's like having an affair. Have a look what it says in Isaiah. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. Jeremiah uh, picks up the same theme. But like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you, Israel, have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. And of course, the book of Hosea talks about Hosea's marriage to an adulterous lady called Gomer. And that's a lived out picture of God's faithfulness to his people um, in spite of their unfaithfulness. So my sexuality helps me appreciate how deeply and passionately and faithfully and jealously God loves me more than I've ever loved anyone in my life and more than anyone else will ever love me. And thirdly, our sexualities point us to the new creation. Our sexuality helps us to understand what we're looking forward to in the new creation. The theme of God as a husband is continued in the New Testament. When Jesus questioned about fasting, he explains that his disciples don't fast because he's still with them. Referring to himself as the bridegroom, he says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. So the church is the bride of Christ and will one day be caught up in the perfect wedding day. The whole of history is heading towards the new creation and the ultimate wedding. Look at what God says about our future in Revelation 19. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. So the church is the bride and Christ is the bridegroom. All imperfect earthly marriages have been pointing towards this. Earthly marriages are like a trailer at the cinema for the film, which is the reality of the new creation. And you know, if you get to see a film, you don't think, oh, do you know, I wish I'd seen the trailer. In the new creation, none of us is going to regret not being married or not having sex here and now. None of us is going to miss out on the deep community of all God's people enjoying God forever. I think that's why it's really crucial to keep an eternal perspective when we're thinking about sexuality and marriage and singleness. So the Bible has good news for all of us when it comes to sexuality. It shows that it has a good purpose, whether we're married or single, whether we're gay or straight, however we identify. 
But how do we communicate that goodness in a culture that has such a different perspective? The cultural story, I'm whizzing through this. There's loads more that I could say, but maybe think of some questions for after. You'll notice um, that the biblical story is a little bit different from the one found in our culture. Just a little bit. So what's the purpose of sex in the culture around us? I think there are a few things that we can pick out. The prevailing view is that sex and sexuality is somehow key to human identity, that being sexually active or um, romantically involved is really important for human flourishing. In particular, we're told that our sexual desires are our identity. They're part of the core of who we are. And so we need to embrace and to express them in order to be true to ourselves and to find satisfaction. There's a strong desire in our culture to know who we are and to be true to ourselves. We value integrity and hate hypocrisy, and that's a good thing. But in our culture, sex is all about identity. It defines who we are, and so it's natural that we then see sex as a need, which is really problematic. Secondly, meeting our needs for intimacy. Messages like love is love are everywhere, aren't they? But actually, what these slogans are talking about is sex, not love. In our culture, so often sex and love or romance are equated. We think that the only way to feel loved is to have sex. It's claimed that it's unhealthy to, re uh, to repress sexual desire. And in popular culture, we see characters who are really desperate to lose their virginity, like Lily in Sex Education. So we think sex is all about uh, our identity. We think that it's um, really important um, because it's the way that we get intimacy. Um, and, of course, it's about giving pleasure as well. A common belief is that sex is just a pleasurable physical act that consenting adults are free to engage in when they want and with whoever they want. Um, if it feels good, do it was uh, one of the catchphrases of the 1970s hippie movement. I'm not actually that old, so I wasn't around then. Um, but it still feels like a guide for a lot of people today. There's no need for commitment or even emotional connection if you don't want and we see this in, in hookup culture, don't we? And in lots of adverts that just use sexual imagery to sell stuff from cars to yogurts, whatever. We can have no strings attached, no strings attached, I can't even say it, uh, casual sex, and we can feel great. So it's a culture which conflates sex and intimacy, which makes romantic relationships the ultimate good. Whether we like it or not, we're surrounded by these messages, and it feeds into our own thoughts and desires. Sex is seen as a primary goal of life in our culture. There's a strong message that you're not fulfilled if you're not having sex and that there might even be something wrong with you. So no wonder lots of people fear, experience a chronic um, fear of missing out and make it their ultimate goal to have a romantic and sexual relationship. There is an assumption that everyone's either having sex or looking for sex. I take some uh, medication, and it's actually really dangerous to get pregnant when you're taking this medication. And I had to go to the chemist recently to pick it up, and I got this massive, you know, grilling about what contraception I was using and all this sort of stuff. And I just said to the guy, look, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> I, you know, it's all, it's all good. Don't worry. Um, but he wouldn't leave it alone. He kept going on and on and on. And so in the end, I just said that to a packed, packed chemist, I am not having sex. <laughs> and... Um, the guy looked really embarrassed and just ran off into a store cupboard. Um, <laughs> and I had just shared something very personal along with lots of people in boots. But, um, 
yeah, there's this assumption, isn't there, that we're all, we're all having sex. The world around us is filled with a narrative um, that sex is just about pleasure, that we need it in order to flourish, that our sexuality defines our identity, and that if we're missing out on sex, we're missing out on intimacy. So how can we address some of those issues? If we believe those things, then it's no wonder that the Christian sexual ethic sounds outdated and even harmful. But I believe that what God says about sex isn't harmful and it isn't arbitrary. He doesn't lay down rules to make our lives miserable. If I trust that God is my heavenly father, then I know that the boundaries that he puts in place for sexual expression are for my good and they're life-giving for me as a gay Christian as well as everybody else. It's not some cruel test that I've got to bear grudgingly until I finally limp into heaven, having missed out on what everybody else has been able to enjoy. So what if the biblical sexual ethic is the answer to the loneliness and the pain and broken relationships all around us? What if biblical sexuality is actually better than the alternative? What if it's the way that human beings are meant to flourish? Let me say a few quick things. First of all, defining our identity. The world around us says that sex defines our identity. But the truth is that God tells us who we are. We don't have to guess. That's massively liberating. We are all made in the image of God and we're all his creatures. So living out of that identity is the route to the best possible life. We are precious in God's sight, regardless of whether we're having sex or not or have a romantic human relationship, we can all experience the intimacy that we were created for and that we crave. That's my next point. Um, the Christian story helps us to understand how we can meet our need for intimacy. As we saw earlier, our culture equates love and sex, but love and sex aren't one and the same thing. We certainly don't need to be having sex. Uh, I found out a fun fact about ferrets the other day. Apparently, female ferrets die if they don't have sex. Um, I'm, <laughs> I've never been so glad not to be a ferret, I have to say. Um, fortunately, it's not the same for humans. We don't need to have sex. But we do all need intimacy. It's a legitimate hunger inbuilt in all of us. We just need to satisfy it in the right place. It's a bit like our need for food, isn't it? We can't live on a diet of junk food. I have tried that when I lived by myself. and I can't cook, so I just had takeaway every day. But that's not good for you. You can't live on a diet of junk food. But you can't eat nothing either because you starve. What we need is better food. In terms of relationships, you know, the church has said no to the relationships that are bad. But often it's just left people starving. What we actually need is better food, the better food of community and friendship and church family. Because sex isn't the only way of experiencing intimacy. There are lots of other ways. I had a bit of time and a bit of PowerPoint, <laughs> so I made a little chart, um, just to sort of show that um, there are so many amazing ways that we experience intimacy. The good news is that regardless of our biological family, knowing Jesus brings us into a new family, which means that we've got parents and children and siblings and the occasional like really weird uncle. There's one in every church, isn't there? <laughs> this seems like a brilliantly positive thing that we can say to the world, that you don't need to be in a sexual or romantic relationship to have value and meaning, because the creator of the universe loves you intimately and he wants you to know him. 
And he wants, you to, he wants to draw you into the loving community of his people. In order for us to live a fulfilled, a sexually fulfilled, um, sorry, a pure, a sexually pure, fulfilled and godly lives, whether we're married or single, we need Christian community. We need the family of God. We can't do this on our own. And this not only helps us to walk the path of discipleship, it helps our non-Christian friends to see the gospel in action. And finally, pleasure. Let's be honest, sex is pleasurable uh, some of the time, although obviously it can cause a lot of hurt and heartache. Christians aren't against pleasure, and we're not against sex. In fact, we actually want the best pleasure possible. The traditional sexual ethic brings with it a huge amount of freedom to enjoy life as it's meant to be. Sex between two married people in a committed lifelong union points to the union that we can all enjoy with Christ. All those of us who are single, um, our sexuality shows us the depth of God's desire for us and it reveals the sufficiency of his love and draws us into intimacy with him. And it's not just about the here and now. As Christians, we get to enjoy everlasting pleasures which will far outweigh even the best experiences we have now. Do you know, when I see happy gay couples and um, I find it hard to see what's wrong with them expressing their sexuality with each other, or we see casual hookups going on or people with a succession of romantic partners, it's essential to see the bigger picture they're missing out on the greatest intimacy with Jesus in the present and the future. Do you know, that's not something I want for any of my friends. I want them to enjoy the true pleasure and freedom of being with Jesus forever. So what about your story? I've said a lot in this session in a very short space of time, um, and some of this may be new to you. You might already be a follower of Jesus, or maybe you're not. You might be gay or straight or identify in some other way or maybe you're just not sure. You might be single or in a relationship. You might have messed up sexually and you're wondering if there's any hope for you. Well, let me encourage you and challenge you. I personally know the pain and the cost of giving my sexuality to Jesus in order to follow him wholeheartedly. It's often been heart heartbreakingly difficult, if I'm honest. I've messed up in sexual relationships but I found forgiveness and freedom in Jesus. I'm now free to live life to the full in the joy of the gospel. I didn't choose my attractions. I've never been attracted to men and uh, probably never will be. Uh, but that's okay. I'm not living with any sort of internalized shame or homophobia. I found a deep peace about my sexuality in Jesus. I found freedom from the need to define myself by who I'm attracted to. My core identity is a precious daughter of my heavenly father, and that's unshakable and everlasting. The Holy Spirit enables me to live a life surrendering everything, including my sexual desires, to Christ, knowing that what I gain is infinitely more than what I give up. Do you know, the good news is that for all of us, there is one who loves us unconditionally, or who will always be there and always be faithful. That can never be a human husband or wife. All of us, whether single or married, can experience that love that we crave in Jesus and in his family. We all want to be loved by someone who would lay down their life for us. There are many counterfeits that try to seduce us, but we can know the real thing. 
True love which brings enriching and meaningful life. This is one of my favourite things that Jesus said. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. If we follow the good shepherd rather than the thief, we can know the true love that we're all looking for. So how's your story going to go? Are you going to trust Jesus, the perfect lover, and surrender your sexuality to him and experience life to the full? Let me give us just a, a few moments of silence and then I will pray to end this little section. Father God, thank you so much for the depths of your love for us. Lord, we all come to you with an imperfect sexuality. Um, but Lord, thank you that you are a God of forgiveness, of healing, of redemption, of new starts. Lord, thank you that your word is true and that your plans and purposes for us are really good. That you would never give us something uh, that is bad for us, that you'd never deprive us of things that are good for us. Lord, thank you that your plans and purposes for our sexuality help us to draw closer to you and experience the depths of your love. And Lord, wherever we're at this morning in our own journey of faith, in our own um, wrestlings with sexuality, I pray that you'd work in us by your spirit, that you would speak to the core of our being, that you would make your presence felt really tangibly. Lord, help your word to come alive to us and help us to be committed to following you with everything that we have. Help us to be obedient to you and Lord, help us to have the real joy of following you wholeheartedly. Thank you so much for what Jesus did for us on the cross, all of us in our glorious difference. Lord, thank you that we are brothers and sisters in Christ and help us to be family to each other. For your glory and in your name. Amen. Amen. Should we say a quick thank you to Anne? William. We've got a quick discussion question. Can you click on one? A quick discussion question. So go into twos or threes and quickly have a chat about do you think the Bible has good news for everyone when it comes to sexuality? Try and digest and process what we've heard. Stick your questions on Slido. It seems to be working, which is great. And then we're going to have about 10 minutes for Q&A after that. Okay, should we start to wrap up our quick buzz of conversation? Thank you for submitting questions on Slido. Lots of great questions, lots of different types of questions, lots of different things we can discuss. We'll try and get a few of them. We've not got lots of time. Before we get to that, let me recommend two resources to you that you might find helpful. Maybe you think, I want to think about this more, explore this more. One is this little book, nice and short, as you can see, by our colleague at Living Out called Ed Shaw, called Purposeful Sexuality. And he's asking that question, is our sexuality, is the fact that we're sexual beings, adult humans, is that a purposeful thing? And particularly, is sexuality still purposeful if we live life and we never have sex and we never get married? Just a really helpful little exploration of biblical teaching on that. It's available just down um, in the bookshop down there. And also our website, livingout.org, pretty much any question you had about faith and sexuality, you'll probably find something on there. So there's 
animations and talks and podcasts and articles, all kinds of things. So we won't be able to answer every question right now, but go on there and there'll be something to help you think about the questions that you have. But let's spend a bit of time going through some things on Slido. The first question, Anna, I want to ask you is asking for a bit of clarification on kind of this confusing thing of, are we saying it is or isn't okay to be gay? How would you answer the question if it's put in those kind of terms? Yeah, it's a really good question. Thank you to whoever asked that. Um, so the Bible doesn't actually talk about sexual attraction um, or sexual orientation. That's quite a modern concept. Um, what the Bible talks about is, is what we do. So it talks about you know, gay sexual acts. Um, so I think it's helpful to separate out attractions and actually you know, actions. Um, so the Bible doesn't... Um, doesn't condemn anybody for the temptations that they experience. So, you know, I, I said um, in my talk that I've never been attracted to a man. If I do experience sexual attraction, that's exclusively towards women. Um, experiencing that attraction in itself, um, you know, having a sort of temptation in that direction isn't, isn't wrong. Um, so, um, you know, in that sense, it's, it, it's okay to be gay. It's okay to experience those temptations like it's okay to experience all sorts of other temptations. It's what I do with those temptations that's, that's important. So it, it isn't okay for me to then, you know, lust after a woman or to go off and sleep with a woman. Um, that's, that's where the, the Bible is very clear about, you know, what we do um, with our minds and with our bodies. So I think, uh, yeah, it is okay to be a Christian who is, who is gay or struggles with same-sex attraction, um, but clearly acting that out um, isn't, yeah, isn't in line with the Bible. And I think it's really helpful and important that you said that's just parallel to lots of other things, right? Mm. All of us experience desires, things we feel we want to do, which actually things God says no to. That's like a universal human experience. And actually, we don't get racked with guilt or feel we have to lie about that. Actually, it can be healthy to be honest about that and tell someone, I really struggle, I really feel tempted about this. And to be honest about that is really helpful. So you want to make a distinction between these desires that seek to drag us away from God's will and God's ways and how we respond to those, both in our thoughts and also in our actions. All about this one, why would God make us gay if it's only to taunt us and cause us guilt? Mm, again, very good question, thank you. Um, I, I would sort of question the, uh, whether God actually makes us gay. So um, there are lots of debates about, you know, why are people gay? Um, that there's been uh, talk of, is, is it genetic? Um, is there a gay gene? Or is it something to do with our nurture, our upbringing? Um, I mean, I personally think that there is there has been no gay gene proven um i think it's probably a mixture of both you may have some sort of genetic predisposition and and it may be environmental factors as well but i think to be honest it doesn't really matter the fact is that we live in a in a fallen world we live in a world that's rebelling against god and all of our sexualities are tainted with that um so, you know, the, the way we are, we are not born perfect. We are not born um, with, with, with nothing um, kind of wrong, wrong with us. So we're all, you know, I, I'm quite an angry person. <laughs> and, you know, I could say God made me angry, but I, I think my anger is, is part of um, living in a, in a sinful and broken world. Um, and as I say, nobody's sexual desires are, are all, all good all the time. Um, so we're living with that 
legacy. So I don't think I would I would be reluctant to say God made me gay. Um, I, I don't think He made me angry. I don't think He made me very partial to drinking too much. You know, um, I think we we all experience kind of all sorts of desires and things which. Uh, go, you know, if we were to sort of pursue those, would go against uh, what God wants for us. Um, was there another part to that question? No, that's great. I was going to pick up the question mentioned, yeah. you know, why would God do this if it causes people to feel guilt and shame? I was going to say Thursday, particularly, when I'm speaking, actually, I'll talk a lot about shame. Shame is a, a real-life reality, sadly, for many people who experience attraction to people of the same sex and for LGBT people more broadly. And so on Thursday, we're going to talk about the reality of shame, but actually that Jesus is the one who can truly free us from shame. So if shame's something you want to think about, come along Thursday morning, we'll talk about that then. This is a really important question. As a gay teen, how would you tell your homophobic parents about your sexuality? Wow, that's that's really big and really, really painful. I mean, my I had a painful experience of that. My my parents aren't Christians and not very big fans of gayness either. <laughs> um, I, I attempted to come out to my mum and. Um, she said something about it being a phase, and we never spoke about it again. Um, so that's like, 35 years ago. Um, I think it's really hard. Um, and I think, you know, we do have to be prepared for being misunderstood and, uh, you know, experiencing some rejection. I would try and... Um, well, I would try and make sure that you have other people in your life that, that know and can support you and maybe be praying for you and that kind of thing you've got safe people that you can talk to about it maybe even sort of have them along when you try to talk to your parents about it it being it would be good to try and encourage your parents to understand more about um how you're feeling and some of the issues that you're going through there might be stuff that you can show them online or some books or that kind of thing to just help them to understand but it's, it's always difficult having an intensely personal conversation with somebody who may take a, a different perspective from you who may not want to listen it's always difficult with close family isn't it because they they love us and they care about us and you know it can be painful you you might have been going through this for years and years and years but for them they're hearing it for the first time and um so you know it could be hard to be sort of gracious when you get a really difficult response um sharing but i you know i would encourage you to yeah, try and sort of get get a bit of backup, get some safe people who can help and, and kind of know that this is what you're you're trying to do. Um, have you got any more wisdom on yeah, that? Yeah, I, mean, I totally agree, yeah. So yeah, I came out to my parents when I was 17, 18, I guess 18. Um, and I wouldn't have said my parents were homophobic, but they had had no contact with gay people. So actually they believed some unhelpful stereotypes about gay people, definitely, and I knew that, and so I was very kind of nervous about, about telling them. And, and some of that came up then when we kind of had that conversation. And I think you're right. So therefore, for me, it was really important that there were people I had already told who were who understood it, who I knew would respond helpfully, would help me both to be honest about what was going on and to walk through that, but also to be faithful to Jesus. And so for me, that was a youth leader. Actually, a youth leader was one of the first people I told. Um, um, well, the church leaders knew by that point as well and some close friends. And so I think if you're worried about telling anyone particularly, find the people who love Jesus and love you who you can talk to as well. And um, if that's it, if that question's coming from you, that is such a big and difficult thing. And the whole thing just about sharing our experience of sexuality is a 
a big thing for, for, for lots of us. And I just encourage you, it's think about finding the people who you just know love you, you know can be trusted, and your youth leaders would be great people for that, actually. Maybe actually for you, that's been kind of locked up inside for a long time, and you're really just wrestling with that. It could be this week, just get a chance to have a chat with your youth leaders, and they'll just be able to help you think about that, pray with you, and, and love you well in that. Let's do one more, just as a quick one. If you're attracted to men and women, this is the top-voted one, you're attracted to men and women, should you aim to be in a relationship with the opposite gender, even if you prefer your own gender? And maybe that question could also be, if you're predominantly same-sex attracted, does that mean you shouldn't pursue a relationship with someone of the opposite sex? Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, again, great question. I think... um, you know, it is uh, if you are attracted to the opposite sex, and obviously, you know, um, the possibility of having a relationship with with somebody that um, leads to marriage of the uh, opposite sex is open to you in a way that it's perhaps not to other people. Um, I mean, I think, I guess there's two things. Two things I'd say. Um, first of all, you know, marriage is a really difficult thing, and it's not to be sort of taken lightly. And um, I think you need to, you know, really really be attracted to your marriage partner, whoever it is, and, uh, you know, have similar visions, similar faith, you know, there's lots of things that need to, uh, you need to think about, Um, because, you know, I wouldn't advocate sort of casual relationships, I think that, you know, as a Christian, um, you should be, you know, if you're going to pursue a relationship, um, then it's wise to choose somebody who shares your faith and your vision, and, you you know, it could be a long-term thing. Um, and we do know friends who are predominantly same-sex attracted, but who have fallen in love with somebody of the opposite sex, got married, and, you know, that's been a really wonderful, life-giving um, relationship. Um, but I would sort of caution against sort of trying to sort of run away from same-sex attraction um, by pursuing a, a, an unwise opposite-sex uh, relationship. And the other thing is, you know, I, I think singleness is really... Um, undervalued in the church and I think you know we we can often think oh I need to have a relationship at all costs and the fact that I'm bi or you know not exclusively same-sex attracted that's my little bit of hope Um, and actually I just want to say that singleness is an amazing calling for Christians you know let's do friendship well let's do community well and let's not sort of rush to get into relationships actually our friend Jeanette is coming tomorrow and we're going to be back here and we're going to be talking all about singleness Um, so I would definitely encourage you to come to that and Jeanette is a hoot let me tell you it will be good fun tomorrow (laughs) and lots of wisdom she's a little bit older than us lots of wisdom we've got five minutes left and what we want to do at the end of each of these sessions is just to have a moment to pause really and to come before God we're talking about really big topics really real life topics for some of us today this will be huge because this is our own experience and we're wrestling with man what does Jesus think about this? What does Jesus think about me? What does this look like for my life? For some of us, it's our friends. How do I love my friends well or family members? And we just want to pause and kind of let stuff settle. And so I want to ask us to keep really quiet. We can talk all afternoon, but for now, let's keep really quiet. But let's just stand. We're just going to engage with God for a few moments. Let's just stand together. And just begin to orientate your heart towards God. You might want to close your eyes. You might want to put out your hands. And I'm just going to pray I'm going to leave some pauses for God to speak to us and minister to us. And we're kind of just for four or five minutes going to see what God wants to do. Because this isn't just about talking about lots of stuff. It's about God encountering us and working our hearts. So let's come before God. Maybe raise your hand if you want to. Close your eyes. Father God, we come to you now. And we say having heard lots of stuff, we just want to know you come and touch our hearts. Spirit of God, we invite you into this place and we invite you to have your way. 
Each of us are coming from such different places. Some of this is, feels really personal. Some of us, it doesn't. Some of us got huge questions, and this has raised more questions. Some of us, this has answered more questions. Some of us will be really um, kind of uh, fueled up now to go and share good news with our friends. Some of us will be really confused, maybe feeling really in pain.